from the campus of Stanford University, this is Schools In. They believe that what we're being told is everything they need to know and they just pay attention to that. You actually have to teach the teachers how to teach for innovation. With your hosts, Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. Welcome to Schools In. I'm Denise Pope, Senior Lecturer with the Graduate School of Education here at Stanford, and I'm with my co-host, Dan Schwartz, Dean of the Graduate School of Education. Very good to see you. Denise can keep a tune, Pope. Oh, now, you have not heard me even attempt to sing. I, That's true. I, I, I cannot keep a tune. Did I you, have two did, kids who are singers, but I am not. Did you take music lessons? I did. I was, I would say, forced to take piano from... A teacher, literally, I feared this person. Um, <laughs> it was so scary. She was really scary. Yeah. She, you went to her house we, and you I sat went, in a very stiff chair. Yes, yes, that's exactly <laughs> it. You're getting the you're getting the picture. And her husband, and this is going to sound terrible. He had a hunchback. He was probably in his 80s. I was really scared of him because he would sit in the room where I was sitting waiting for my turn to be called. And I just, I was scared he was going to die. I was scared he was going to talk to me. <laughs> I, I was scared of everything about this guy. And I would go in and I, and I never practiced. So of course she knew because you yes. can't fake that. Yeah. You can't fake it. So I'd feel terrible. And she was the type of person who would wrap my hands because I wasn't curling my fingers correctly on or the she'd keys. wrap your knuckles. Oh, this was old school. This was a long time ago. So when it came time for my own children taking music lessons, right, I, so I got out of that. I, I cried and my parents let me quit and I can read music and I can, you know, I don't tell people I can play the piano, but if you put a piece of music in front of me, I could, you know, maybe with a couple hours try to figure it out. So with my kids, I thought music is really important. I really want them to do this. And it was the same thing. We thought we found a teacher who wasn't scary. They weren't scared. They just didn't like it. They didn't like being told what to do. And mm -hmm. the day I let my oldest daughter quit piano, the next day she sat down at the piano and started to write songs. Wow. So it didn't work for my other two kids. But for that one kid, that was definitely the right choice was so, to let her quit. So I had a different experience. My teachers were more progressive. I'm finishing a lesson, and I'm hearing the piano teacher speaking to my mom, and he, he asks, is he this uncoordinated in everything? Oh, no, <laughs> Dan. So we switched. That was with violin, and then we went to <laughs> piano, and it was the same experience going on. And then this new teacher says to my mom, you know, he gets all the right notes. But he's kind of off the – he's too slow and oh. it's the wrong – is this show up in other parts of his life? <laughs> oh, that's so sad. I know. And all I ever wanted to be was a rock star playing guitar. Oh, you know? <laughs> that's so, so sad. Well, the, the good news is we have an expert with us today. We have Mark Applebaum, who is a professor of music here at Stanford. He's a composer. He's a performer. He is known for being able to craft musical instruments out of found objects or junk. And he also – also sees a very big connection between uh, music and, and creativity, creative awesome, practice. Awesome. So, Mark, Mark. Yes, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Well, why don't you have a really interesting story. So why don't you just fill folks in on your journey, how you got, how you got here? You know, it's interesting listening to your introduction. Uh, I started 
taking classical piano lessons. That's, you know, characteristic of many musicians. And at first I liked it. And I think in large measure I liked it because I was really good at it. It came easily to me. And so at like seven, maybe I was like for a few weeks at a child prodigy. And then <laughs> at like seven and a half, I was just like above average. And then at eight, I was, you know, it was it, it was tough to kind of keep that standard. Um, and, and when the going got tough, uh, which actually wasn't, when I was seven and a half or eight, it was a little bit later, <laughs> then I felt uncomfortable being average. Mm. And so in, in many respects, my life in music is one of trying to find myself and find my own uniqueness and find out what, what values I have intrinsically and not, in a sense, meet some sort of external cultural standard. But there's no question that those uh, many years, and, and they persisted um, from the time I was seven, more or less through high school, studying classical piano were formative, important ones. And I'm and while I've spent most of my adult life breaking with the kind of traditional values associated with that practice, I feel indebted to the mm-hmm. the kind of the rigors and the the more or less conservative discipline of that background. So I'm, I'm actually quite conflicted in that regard because I see myself as a, as a progressive in some ways who's made rupture with the past on the basis of understanding it. I've heard this story a lot in the arts. At one point, I was trying to be a writer, and, and I was told, see if you can imitate these great writers, and then you can break with them. But can you master the past? I've heard the same thing for art as well. Yeah, and I mean, Picasso said something like, um, learn the rules like a pro so that you can break them like an artist. Mm. And that's the kind of the common, that's the sort of the common wisdom about things. I think it's actually really dangerous, though. I I mean, it's, it's easy to adopt that, but there's some problems with that. First of all, there's an opportunity cost that I would describe as a kind of myopia that is the consequence of learning something, of communing with a tradition. And this is one of those things that's impossible to, uh, to to prove or to define. But I'm instinctively certain that while at the same time that I can excel in some ways as a consequence of my communion with the past and my learn my experience of those rules, I'm absolutely certain. I'm absolutely convinced that there are all sorts of uh, realms of thought that are not available to me uh, available to me as a kind of uh, intellectual narrowing or a kind of myopia associated with learning those rules. There's some other criticisms we could make. One is that um, the the guitarist Robert Fripp once said something like, the project of the musician is music. The project of the professional musician is business. So in that regard, thinking mm-hmm. about uh, Picasso's adoption of the word pro, learn the rules like a pro, I, I personally have, if, if business is what, what, what being a professional is about, I have no interest in being a pro. And then there's other things like, I guess I'm suddenly instinctively citing uh, electric guitarists here, uh, maybe because of Dan's, uh, you know, sort of um, earlier agenda. But Eddie Van Halen once said something to the effect of, had I, uh, had I learned the rules of playing guitar, I never would have invented all of, imagined and invented all of the techniques which now con- comprise the rules of guitar, which subsequent pedagogues actually teach to their to their students. Right. So, I'm, so I, I have a lot of conflict about it. In so part. I'm not. I'm, you know, I'm, I have to say I'm not sure what counts as the rules. So I often thought uh, I can't learn this because it's physically so complex. And then I discovered I learned to type, which is quite physically complex. But I thought that was the rules. Right. It was knowing mm-hmm. where to put your finger to make the note. But th- but these aren't the rules you're talking about. You have some. These are 
music theory rules or <laughs> rules that C is below D or? Well, um, I'm trying I, to think. How, how many hours, how many days do we have for a music theory lesson? Yeah, yeah. Without, so maybe this was um, a bad yeah, question yeah. No, no, about no. the rules. It's a little it, too abstract, too it's, academic. It's a perfectly fine question, but um, I guess I would say that within any – uh, within any discipline, there are, you know, maybe we shouldn't think about it as rules, but maybe we should say that there are cultural practices and there are norms. Mm -hmm. And in the arts, uh, on the one hand, there's uh, uh, there's great things that can be done and a lot of uh, admiration and uh, enjoyment by uh, audiences uh, can be experienced through the uh, connection, the, uh, the the articulation, the the realization, I should say, of norms. At the same time, we expect our artists, as we do our scientists, to to break the rules from time to time and to to show us new things. I'm thinking when I say scientists, I mean I'm invoking in a sense Kuhn or something like that, which is I know there's arguments about the value of of his notion of paradigm shifts. But if we take like the kind of Kuhnian world, then we we expect science science every so often, whether it's you know Newton or then Einstein, to to show us new things where there's a, a distinct rupture with the past. And uh, you know, Kuhn would refer to uh, pejoratively as the work, the almost yeoman but kind of workaday. Day-to-day uh, uh, -day work of the scientist in between those shifts as merely normal science. So the point is that I, I do normal art sometimes, but I'm also expected. And for the, the 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 small ghetto of art in which I work, I'm actually if if I'm if celebrated for anything, I'm actually celebrated not for working with those rules and those norms, but I'm actually celebrated for the pressure I put on them, the kind of ontological distortions that I make. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are speaking today with Mark Applebaum, a professor of music, about how he breaks the rules. So, so what you're talking about is a very common phenomenon. I don't know if it's escapable. So a, a, a good story is uh, some engineers got together to try and figure out how to make it a machine that could pick tomatoes without destroying them, mm -hmm. right? And, and that's because hand-picking is expensive. And they made some progress, but they never quite solved it. And then they talked to some biologists. The biologists said, well, why don't you just make a tomato with a thicker skin, <laughs> right? And, and so the – which is sort of why we have a lot of bad-tasting tomatoes. But uh, it's very hard to escape your prior knowledge. You know, you know it. And, and it, does music give me a special privilege at escaping sort of my prior beliefs or somehow like that? Because it's hard to say, I'm going to stand out on the outside and disrupt, because you're always sort of trapped by what you know. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I don't know that I have uh, – uh, I don't have a surefire solution for that. Um, so this, this – I mean, it's interesting because in this context, I'm speaking – and in many respects, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking falsely or I'm giving a false impression that I've thought about this and I have a formula for this or I have some sort of – um, and, and, and as an educator, that I have some sort of uh, traction on how to go about uh, dealing with these issues we're, we're talking about. In fact, fundamentally, I'm, there's the artist part of me that simply is curious. Mm. I, and, it's, and, and that's more of a, of, of a ludic kind of um, orientation. It's just a playfulness uh, where I get and – I, and I make pieces because I get obsessed with something. And that obsession usually fo is formulated in the, uh, in the form of a question that goes, what if, you know, ellipses, et cetera. So I, I'm curious about something and then I do something. And so the pieces themselves, 
their processes. So that's, in a sense, to, to borrow somebody like Elliot Eisner's uh, uh, ideas, uh, the work of art as verb. So it's the, 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 the work of art, the working of art. But they also become, in a sense, artifacts. So work of art is noun. They are these, these pieces that manifest themselves as a kind of like they're, they're the residue of those processes. And then, and then if I, based on my particular kind of curiosity, they are, in a sense, the answer to your question. They themselves form uh, responses to uh, to w- what can art be and, and so forth. So, Mark, if we want more people to do this, if we want more people, El- Elliot Eisner was my advisor here in the School of Ed, oh, so you're, you're saying a man <laughs> that I love, right? If we want more people to, to see art as a verb and to really understand um, all that art affords, how do we do that? What's your solution to that? Because you, you, you teach here at Stanford, and people love your classes. So what, how, do you, how do you do that? Well, thank you for your kindness. Um, it never feels that way when I have this particular student or that particular <laughs> student who's, you know, aggrieved by some sort of thing. But, um, you know, I don't uh, – hmm. it's almost like you're asking me the question – uh, or maybe I wrongly inferred from your question that there's some sort of proselytizing that could be done to get more people engaged in the arts, and that's fine. Uh, I don't feel that I'm the person for that. I'm, I guess I'm lucky enough to to have students who can who connect with me because that's already inside them. They already have mm-hmm. some sort of curiosity, and then also my students, I work with them on their agendas. So if they want to work on the rules, we work on the rules. And that those rules could be in some genre or some idiom. They could be based on some sort of historic uh, uh, cultural space. Or they could be working, as I mostly work, on sort of uh, looking outside those boundaries. Um, so I, I, I just I, – I'm, I'm lucky. Uh, you know, I guess I, I just feel lucky that I have students who already have that fire in them. Uh, and maybe that maybe this is a kind of ivory tower kind of privileged experience. But those are the students that I find they're already they're already um, very very curious, and they define themselves as artists, and they're and they're eager and ready to go. You're listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are speaking with Mark Applebaum, professor of music at Stanford, on how he teaches students, and and I guess how they teach you, right? That absolutely, <laughs> it is a two it is a two way street, and that's one of the great. Th- I'm sure you know. Uh, both of you that like, I mean, it's one of the things that keeps us really fresh. And I have to say that uh, when I actually am teaching a class, like something like about music theory, and we're looking at the past, I get excited. I'm not actually intrinsically excited about those rules, I have to say. (laughs) But I get excited about them through a kind of vicarious experience where I see, or or it's not even just about rules or theory. It's actually anything with which I'm already familiar there's a real buzz that you get in a classroom when you can tell that you've exposed somebody to some, uh, to something, some music, some idea um, that may be, you know, well-worn for you. But it's um, – so that reanimates my commitment and my excitement about teaching. Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> let, me, let me change it a little bit, uh, but not too much. So my cousin is uh, pushing retirement, and he's decided he's going to learn piano. 
And he gets a piano teacher who I, it sounds a little bit like Denise's piano oh, teacher. Oh, boy. And then just recently, he did a recital with all her other students that are 8- and 10-year-olds. Oh, no. And so he's in this recital with these 8- and 10-year-olds. And uh, the ending's pretty good because after he plays, this 8-year-old this comes up to this 60-year-old man and says, that was good. You, you did very Aww. well there. <laughs> so, so let's say I want to get into the music game now. It's late. What, what advice? Do for me? Should I get a piano teacher? Should I study books? Should I just start making things that sound to me like music? I think all of the above. Just spend the time. Just spend the time, engage, and talk to other people. I would, I would say don't do it only alone. Have some time that's alone, but I would say don't do it only alone. Interface with other people, whether that's a community of other musicians, somebody who you'd call a teacher, and so forth. Um, the other thing to do is to remember that, you know, there are two ways I like to think of uh, of like uh, scaling a mountain, getting to the top of the mountain peak. One is to just rest and relax and look at the mountain peak and then just wait until you have all the energy to jump immediately all the way to the top with perfection. <laughs> and the other way is to – and by the way, that way – doesn't work, so I lied. I don't have yeah. two ways. Yeah, I'm thinking that I, wasn't yeah. really gonna what, happen. Gonna... <laughs> the other way, of course, is to take one step yeah. and then acknowledge that and then take a second step yeah. and so forth. And then, you know, your 10,000 hours or whatever it is, you know, pass by. But I think, especially for adults, there is a, another kind of challenge, and this has to do with the, the construction of our ego. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll explain this. I mean, it's about not expecting yourself to be great. Um, and I think that – here, let me, let me explain it a different way. So I like to – I'm a jazz improviser. I play jazz piano. And if I have a colleague – imagine two colleagues in my in the music department who are not really improvisers. They don't define themselves as improvisers, but they're, but they're amazing uh, musicians. One is a, a classical pianist and the other is, a, say, a classical flutist. And they both come and ask me for some help because they say, hey, I'd like to learn how to do a little bit of jazz piano. I'd like to learn – you know, dip my toe in the water. I can make progress better with the flutist on jazz piano than I can with the pianist on jazz piano. And that's because the classical pianist has a construction of the ego that says, this is my tool, this is the technology that is, this is my instrument, and I know that when I sit down at this, I, I expect myself to be really you know, excellent. You know, I've made a career out of this. The flutist has no expectation of sounding great on the piano. And so in a sense, their, their, their ego doesn't get in the way. Mm-hmm. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We will be back with Mark Applebaum talking about music, creativity, a little bit of jazz, next on Sirius XM Insight 121. Students focus on what they were told, not paying attention to the situation. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. So they're not going to see anything new because they're so busy trying to copy what you told them. From the campus of Stanford University. Welcome back to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking with Mark Applebaum, a professor of music here at Stanford, talking about uh, how he relates to teaching music to others, how music can lead to breaking the rules and, and creativity. Pretty exciting stuff. Mark, you have a story that you wanted to tell us um, about taking piano lessons early on. Right. I mean, you know, I, the foundation of my musical capacity is is built on this experience of taking assiduously practicing the piano and so forth. Um, and I'm grateful to my parents for uh, for first enabling me and making it possible for me to take piano lessons. Um, but then 
at the same time, there's a, it's a double-edged sword. Because looking back, most of the tears uh, growing up in my household surrounded uh, practicing. And there was confrontation, you know, but, uh, with how my ma- parents. How many hours a day? I was not – I'm not one of those music athletes. I practiced probably about 45 minutes a day only. And uh, – but that was what I call practice. See, there that was, part of the tears were hearing um, – that sounds like playing, not practicing, which which in itself is an interesting <laughs> ah, thing because yes, that's yeah, very interesting. this is good. So I mean, today I'm trying to rehabilitate a kind of childlike state, which is about play, not perform. So uh, now I changed the word from play to practice, and now I'm changing it from play to perform. As kids, we say I play the piano, I play the drums, I play the guitar, and then as adults, we say, I mean, we might say that, but we really say, you know, we really think I perform on the piano, I perform on the drums, I perform on the guitar. And um, and I think that again, going back to this sort of ludic, uh, childlike playfulness, uh, I'd really like to rehabilitate that quality. Um, so again, it's a, it, uh, I'm grateful that my parents. Uh, I'm going to use a strong word. Pushed me to play the piano, and they gave me this kind of drive and ambition. On the one hand, and on the other hand, it was a there were real hard times growing up as a kid. And you know that what happened for me is that the at some point the classical music became a little bit less interesting in high school and what became interesting was playing in a rock band so i started playing keyboards and learning about the blues and so forth and playing in a rock band and looking back um i realized something at the time i thought it was about the music i thought it was about striving and having this excellent band and so forth and there that was there's no question that that was part of the of of the of the of the job then but, like, I also realized it was really a social construction for me. In, in short, like, I didn't want to die a virgin. You know, so there was, like, this kind of feeling <laughs> Girls of, Girls like, like musicians. <laughs> well, I met my wife freshman year of high school in algebra class. So maybe – she wasn't my wife then. Um, so maybe <laughs> yeah, this all worked that. out. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so I think that the, the, the music as a commu- – so, uh, I mean, many kids play in orchestras and so forth. But the pianists often – are, are kind of uh, can be loners, and so the social construction of being in a band, learning uh, how to rehearse because we the the other thing is the band was entrepreneurial. We didn't have a faculty advisor. It wasn't band class in right. high school. It was just a bunch of buddies, and we got together. We didn't know how to practice. We didn't know how to learn songs. We didn't know how to rehearse. We didn't know how to like navigate all the interpersonal uh, dimensions of a of a, of of being in a band, and we figured that out. So that was great. And then, of course, the social construction of, like, feeling like a misfit in high school and not finding my place, but then finally having the cachet of being in a rock band was really great. And then the next chapter, if I may, if I may, am I, can I be, will go, you indulge baby. me? Go, Please, go. go. This so, is, so many parents out there are so happy. So many kids are so happy you just had 45 minutes of, of rehearsal. <laughs> you just made so many people's day. So, yeah. Yeah, keep going. Okay. Keep going. I know. People like, wait a second. I do eight hours. He said 45 minutes, and he's a professor at Stanford. So, right, okay. right. Um, individual results may vary. But so let me fast forward to college. So then I went to Carleton College where I was really interested in uh, – I completely drank the liberal arts Kool-Aid. And my interest there is in studying all sorts of different things. I knew that music was important important to me. And I knew that I was going to take some music theory and some music history courses just because I was interested in it. But I decided not to major. I knew I would not be a music major at Carleton because I already knew about music and I wanted to learn about all sorts of other things. Sophomore year came time to determine to announce my major to register that. 
And I looked around at some friends who were double majors, and I thought, wow, that's really ambitious. That's very impressive. And you have depth in two areas, and two is one more than one. So that seemed like really great. But then I did the math, and I realized that they had depth in two areas at enormous elective breadth. And that was the goal for me, to be able to take one religion class and one art history class and one anthropology class and et cetera. And then I realized, wait a second, I've taken enough music classes that I only need two more music classes mm. to complete the major. So I just decided to be a music major in order to do more not music. And to this day, that really characterizes, and to bring it back to the idea of putting pressure on the ontology of what we decide, what we call a musical piece, that really characterizes my composition because to this day, I'm continuing to do, I use composition as a lens to see other things. I use composition as a, as a portal into other disciplines so that I can do more not music. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope, and we're speaking with Mark Applebaum, a professor of music, and talking about not music, talking about not doing music. So very quick, uh, we've really talked about music, playing music, performing music. Come up with an analogy for what it's like to be a composer, like, like uh, a chef, uh, a lover on a beach, uh, frustrated <laughs> mathematician. So what what... Help me understand, because I, yeah. I do not do this. Right. So. And now, hmm, let me work my way to that, because I don't have a snappy thing off the top of my head. I, uh, the, first of all, there are different aspects of being a composer. So there's the um, uh, there's this moment, and what I'm doing is I'm putting my the back of my hand on my forehead and leaning back and looking up to the heavens <laughs> and having this kind of moment of deep inspiration. Um that's a small part of, of, of what we do as composers. But that, that there has to be that moment. And for me, again, it's manifest as a curiosity that is interesting enough to form an obsession. Mm -hmm. So there's some something that's a, a kind of uh, an irritant that perturbs me and I'm interested in something. Then there's a whole lot of other things that have to do with like using a photocopier or like, <laughs> you know, like printing out parts uh, for yeah. players. I mean, there's a lot of... Uh, I see, I see. There's a lot of that. But... Um, Okay, but it is, but it is, but it is inventive, and it's sort of speculative, and it involves a lot of imagination. What I like is that I, I am, I imagine something that doesn't exist in my head, and then if I, if it's the standard musical chain, which doesn't have to be in all music, but uh, there's a kind of uh, quintessential one in which you have an author, and then there's this kind of text, which we're going to call the score, that's delivered as a set of instructions, a kind of recipe to an interpreter, mm -hmm. and that's, that's mm -hmm. the performer who are going to who's going to make a realization. Then I'm actually uh, creating something in my head, and then through this chain of experience, later it becomes realized, mm -hmm. and um, that's an exciting and terrifying experience. But yeah. it's really yeah. a thrill. And what you're talking about is exactly what we know of when we think about engaging students in school. Hmm. So this idea of choice and voice, this idea that you have to care about it, that you should see it, that you should own it, that you should feel some authentic relationship to it, that you're inspired and you're doing something hard, challenging, but you're so into it that you kind of lose mm -hmm. track of time, yeah. right? So The flow. The flow, right. Mm -hmm. Chicks and Mahali's flow. So this notion of um, real engagement is is obviously what you've experienced when you're doing music. Something I did not experience when I was taking piano lessons at all. That's that's a, I, I like the way you put it, and it reminds me of something that practicing for forty five minutes is an eternity. Practicing for one minute is an eternity. If you don't have that flow, if you're not into what you're doing, I I'm I'm 
I'm really like, I don't have the, I get exasperated so easily. I don't have the patience to do anything that I'm not so overwhelmingly committed to. But when I am committed to it, I can work assiduously on a small thing for a year. That's the sign. That's what we're after. That what? that that might help you, Dan. If you're going to learn guitar, it's one step at a time, and you got to be really into it from the first minute on. Right. So I'm going to spend a year on that note. All right. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. And thank you for listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We're on the campus of Stanford University and on Sirius XM Insight 121.